Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today's episode is going to be an interesting one because we're going to geek our asses out about advertising today. And I'm going to deem this particular boss the pay-per-click boss. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are, John, and what you do? Absolutely. So I am the CEO of an agency, a digital advertising agency called Step Group. And what we do is we partner with all kinds of different businesses around the world to create and manage pay-per-click campaigns for them. So primarily, we're talking about Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram, Microsoft, all the, all the, all the platforms where you can get in front of people online. And our goal is to effectively and efficiently spend our clients' budgets to get them as much profitable return on ad spend as possible. So, I mean, I'm just going to dive into this, and, and it's kind of like it's a space that I love and, and I enjoy as well. And anyone that's a marketer kind of understands you kind of have to pay to play at, at certain times in whatever career space that you're in. So a lot of people, you you hear the nuances of, oh, I've done Facebook ads. Facebook ads doesn't work. I've done YouTube ads. Oh, I haven't gotten any results. I've done Bing. I've done Google. I've done all these damn things, but it doesn't work. So I'm sure if you heard that, like, how do you combat that the second that you hear that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I want to understand is, when you say you tried Google and it didn't work, well, what did you do on Google? Because there are many, many ways to approach Google or any platform and success thereon. And some of those approaches are not going to be successful for you, and some may be. And so I want to dig into, dig into that with them and also dig into their business model and who is their target audience and figure out were they even trying the right channel. So one example I like to give is... Let's say you're let's say you're selling something that people aren't really searching for right now. Let's say you're a lifestyle brand. You're trying to build awareness for a new product, for example. Well, Google search probably is going to be a terrible place for you because people don't know to search for what you're selling. So they're not going to find you on there. And that's not your target audience. You should probably be on Facebook or Instagram, somewhere where you can create awareness. Alternatively, if you're a plumber, people don't really go to Facebook to talk about how much they love plumbers. You want to be on Google so when person has a leaky faucet and they search for help right now, you can come up right now. So it's really aligning strategy and channels and figuring out what makes sense for each unique business. Nice. nice. Very, very nice. So I mean, let's dive into to your story a little bit. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're thinking about search engine optimization, you're, you're thinking about like ads, you're thinking about all these different things. If you go back 20, 25 years, like this market sector didn't even really exist, right? So coming back to you, like if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? That is an excellent question. Um, I would say driven. Uh, I'm very driven to do right by our clients, do right by our team and figure out what, you know, what works in the marketing world. Um, so it's a driven, I would say um, honest. I try to approach all the conversations with, again, our clients and team in in an honest way. And that's something in the advertising world that is often lacking. Um, A lot of advertisers get a bad rap because many of them are just trying to, hey, see how much more money you can spend for, for a client. Whereas I hope that I always take the approach of what's the best thing for the client and telling them straight up, you know, A, A or A to Z, what, what's the best approach for them? 
Um, and then a third word, I would say, um, honestly, I'd say family, man. The newborn felt over three months at this point. And that's a fantastic motivation for me on the business side as well, because I want to support my family well. I want to be a role model to my son as he grows up and, and teach him the ropes of the business world. And so that helps to get me up in, in the morning each morning. Nice, nice. Taking the, one of the words that you said, I mean, your best experiences dealing with clients. I mean, what's the worst experience you ever had to deal with a client before and, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, that could share many, many stories. Um, I would say some of the most frustrating experiences dealing with clients are when we're doing a great job for them and we even have the data to prove it and they just won't accept it. So I can think of one scenario where um, you know we were managing the pay click campaign I can't well, we're losing so much money or you know year over year performance is down so much um why are we getting so few orders etc and we dug into their data and we're able to show them well actually on the ppc side we're doing way better year over year you're making way more revenue but something's happened to you organic side of things and that's where this missing revenue is coming from and they just wouldn't accept it. They're like, oh, well, we still need to move on from you. <laughs> Ironically, they, they're back with us now after about six months because they finally realized, oh, yeah, <laughs> made the wrong decision. But that type of thing is most frustrating where it's like, hey, we're, we're doing everything we should be. We're making you money. What's the disconnect and why aren't you, you know, understanding that that's, that's the reality? And a lot of that comes down to communication and just sometimes there's variables that, that you can't control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think anyone that's in in the digital space has has dealt with with that particular issue, right? So, I mean, based upon what you said, I mean, obviously you tackled it, you've overcame it, and you got that client back. But in, in the bigger scope of things, is like your marketing strategy, right? Because again, you have to overcome these hurdles consistently considering that you are supposed to be helping people with their marketing ads. So a lot of times people probably come to you with the negative aspect of, well, first part we talked about was like, people saying that, hey, it didn't work for them. And now you're talking about, hey, you had a client, you had facts to show them the proof behind the scenes and they still left and they came back. With your own personal marketing, like how does that work for you? Like how are you overcoming these massive hurdles with the cold market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you make a great point in that often when businesses come to us looking for help, they are doing so because they've had a bad experience, either working with another agency or an in-house marketer, whatever the case may be. And so they're, they're burned already and they're coming to us saying, hey, we need your help. But then they also may not have much trust left to trust what we're telling them we need to do on their behalf to make them successful. So a lot of the, um, the sales process on our end as we're working with leads who want to work with us is trying to set appropriate expectations saying, hey, A, advertising, it's not a magic bullet. It's not going to solve all your problems. If you have a terrible offer or your prices are twice as high as your competitors, we're not going to be able to fix that by advertising. Advertising is fuel for whatever you already have. And if you have something that's bad, well, we'll fuel wasting money. If you have something that's good and that people want, then we can fuel making money for you. So we try to set realistic expectations with clients, both in terms of what they can expect from the marketing that we're handling for them, as well as what their relationship with us is going to look like and how we're going to partner with them and what the team looks like that they would be working with on our end. So I think that's that's a big part of, of our marketing is, is, again, looking to set clear expectations. And then obviously we have to follow through on those expectations. And when we do, 
and we can earn their trust and get them to the point where they recognize that we don't approach things maybe in the same way as a previous agency and they're willing to keep giving us um, room to make the changes on their behalf that need to be made to make them successful. Nice, nice. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you help multiple different businesses and, and it, this is like a question that I like to ask because again, everyone's business is strategized in a different way, right? So is your business, is this set up as an LLC, S Corp, a C Corp? Like how is your business structured? Yeah, yeah, great question. So we're an LLC. Um, and that's kind of the approach that has made sense based upon how, how we're owned and how we work with clients. Nice. Nice. So this, this earlier on, I was alluding to talking to, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago when, when this wasn't even on the radar for anyone to even say, Hey, I want to grow up and I want to be an ad specialist. Right. So like, what kind of kid were you growing up? Oh, good question. I had a kid who loved reading, uh, still do loved history, loved reading about, all kinds of historical stuff, loved writing. I've always been a writer as well. And I think getting into marketing is definitely an extension of loving to communicate and craft interesting messaging and play with words and see how I can, you know, it's the most compelling, emotionally charged way of, of saying something. Um, so that was something I've, I've loved to do ever since a kid. And, um, I think I've I always had a good imagination as a kid as well, which is which is helpful when it comes to thinking up campaigns itself in the shoes of people, both on the consumer side as well as on our client side, understanding how different people react to different messaging or communication and uh, and how we can tailor our messaging to that. Nice, nice. So, I mean, that's a, that's a good segue to kind of dive into. And I think, you know, if ad platforms are, are out there, I would probably think Facebook is probably one of the better ones just for the, like, their targeting, right? So, that's when I kind of talk about that a little bit, right? You're talking about you have opportunity to create target marketing aspects of an ad to target someone's behavior, right? Versus targeting a particular keyword. So let's just dive into these, these both platforms. We have Google on one hand is more so keyword driven. You have Facebook on the other hand is more behavioral. Do you then recommend like a, a dabble between a 50-50 or do you more strategize based upon one platform versus another than add on later? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say generally, if we're working with a client, especially where there's some budget limitations, which there typically are, you've got to you know, you've got to prove some success, prove a model before you throw more money at something. We will usually start with one channel where we see it being the lowest hanging fruit and the best opportunity for immediate ROI for the client. And then we'll build our way up from there. We want to make sure that they're investing enough money into the channel to really generate statistically significant data and give us the ability to optimize based upon the data and improve results. What we'll often find sometimes is if we try and start with too many channels at once, you know, we're throwing a little bit of money at each channel and we just can't collect enough data fast enough to know what's working within each channel or even which channel is working better than the other. So usually, usually we like to start conservative, start small, and then prove model, generate good ROI and grow from there. Nice, nice. So the rule of thumb in, in Facebook ads has been forever, and obviously there's variables to this, right? The $5 a day play, right? So, and again, like you're saying, you have to add a little bit more. So $50 a day, maybe even $500 a day can get you more results a lot faster to get more analytical data to make that educated decision to optimize those ads. So where do you start? Are you more of a five to play to kind of do seven days kind of thing? Or are you more so let's do $50 for 10 days and then really have some real solid data? Like, like where's the price point range for you? 
Yeah, it's definitely going to depend on a couple different variables. One would be the size of the audience that we're targeting, and another would be the price point of what it is that we're selling and kind of the sales cycle too on that product or service. So on the size side of things, if we're, let's say, if we're targeting uh, a relatively small remarketing list, well, we can probably throw $5 a day at that and easily you know, hit the people we need to hit because it's a, it's a limited audience. If we're going after more of a proactive you know, targeting based upon interests or demographics, things like that, then generally we're going to start higher than, than $5 per day. Exactly what it's going to be will definitely depend upon, again, you know, what, what that price point or service is the client is selling. If they're selling a, um, if they're selling a widget, that's an impulse buy and costs $10. Well, you can pretty quickly see whether or not your ads are performing there. If it's something where, hey, we're trying to you know, build awareness and maybe seven or eight times after someone sees the ad, they'll download a white paper and then get onto an email list and that kind of thing. Well, it's going to be a very different budget um, that we would put in place there because we have to plan for that longer term, more interactions and try and figure out what is our conversion rate going to look like over you know, weeks or even months potentially of advertising. Nice, nice. So you're talking about like target audience sizes. I mean, again, I, I've been in this space for a period of time. So I, I mean, I definitely understand that. And I love to have this type of conversation with someone that is on that level, right? So let's say if I'm dealing with someone, and I'll say the rule of thumb is usually to get a ballpark of about a million people in that target audience, at least that way you have some room to play, you have some longevity, you can kind of put some money into it, but then as you d decide to scale, then you have room to scale. So you won't run out of that particular audience. Is that a mm -hmm. true statement for what you do? Or what is your general recommendation for the starting size of an audience? I would say that's a, that's a good recommendation when you have a relatively broad audience. If you're selling something that can be of interest and useful to a bunch of different people, I'd say there are some situations, uh, for example, maybe in the business business space where you just have a much more limited audience because there's only so many businesses or so many CEOs or whatever who are actually um, in your target audience just in the world or in the US to begin with. And in that type of scenario, um, I would say it would make a lot of sense to start with, with a smaller audience, really layering your targeting and, and going after the people who you know are truly your audience that you want to hit. So it, I think it, it, it depends. Uh, I say it depends a lot when I'm interviewed, and that's, it's always frustrating to hear, but that's just kind of kind of the reality as you know the marketing space. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what you're saying is definitely true. I mean, obviously, if you have an audience of 10,000 people and that's that's your audience, but you're selling a product that's $100,000, then your conversion points are pretty much through the roof versus if you're selling a gadget for $10, the larger audience with the conversions will be a lot more fruitful down the road. So I definitely concur with that. So exactly. going into like, um, so obviously you're in your space, you're, you're head down, like, you know, we're geeking out about the technology, we're geeking out about this information, but I mean, someone may be hearing this podcast and they may deem, okay, this guy's an overnight success. He knows his stuff, but in reality, how long have you been on this journey to get to where you are currently? Yeah, I've been in, in the marketing space for over over a decade. I was Stub Group for close to a decade. And yeah, like you said, there's there there really aren't overnight successes. It's been a, a matter of bootstrapping, of trial and error, of figuring out how do we get our own clients, how do we make them successful, how do we scale, how do we find the right team members to bring on board to our team that are going to be a good fit to help our clients. HR, marketing, sales, all the fun stuff that, that goes into running a successful business is usually trial and error. And so that's been, that's been my the last decade. Nice, nice, nice. So, I mean, with, with that decade, that 10-year span, right, if you could time travel back to any particular point in time, right, and let's say you have 24 hours, you could spend 24 hours in the past and you could change something, when would you go back to and what would you change? Oof. 
this may seem like a cop-out, but I'm, I'm of the opinion that you don't go back and change things because everything that you learn, even those mistakes that you made back in the day, those are crucial in getting you to where you are today and successes you can achieve in the future. So I, I am a big believer of just learning, learning through the school of hard knocks. And, uh, and some days, if I had to go back and change, I'd say, you know, maybe those, those dark days where it looks like how the world is terrible and this is never going to succeed maybe a pat on the back then to say, no, just keep, keep your head down, keep plugging away. Things will get better. That, that would be, that would be maybe be what I would, uh, what I would do at that time. Nice. Nice. I mean, just, just hearing, hearing your answer, it kind of makes me think of like the multiverse, right? If time travel was possible and you went back and changed time, then you have two forks in a row. Like what would the outcome, where would you be differently from where you are right now? You may be exactly the same or there may be some factors to you that would be uniquely different versus where you are right now. Um, exactly. So let me dive into like your entrepreneurial background a little bit, right? So obviously you're into tech space and you understand technology. You've been in the game for about 10 years, but usually when I ask this question, it usually stems from some kind of ancestor or some kind of parent before you. So do you come from an entrepreneurial upbringing or entrepreneurial background? Anybody in your family has an entrepreneurial insight? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. My father, uh, he was an attorney but he had his own, his own practice for, I think, 25 to 30 years that he ran himself. Uh, before that, his father, my grandfather, ran a grocery store in the small town that I grew up in. So it's definitely something I grew up seeing, okay, here's how you run a business. And you know, you got to deal with the ups and downs of variable income and all the fun stuff that comes with that. And I think that definitely helped to, to prepare me for stepping into that type of role in my own career. Nice, nice. So I guess, you know, without saying it, you would say that that's a factor to your current success. If that was not there, would you have, I mean, obviously you would have figured it out, but would you have figured it out as quickly as you have now? Probably not. Um, and probably would have yeah, taken longer to figure out what is, you know, can you do this? What does life look like? But by being able to, to see what my dad did, my grandfather did, um, having that understanding of, hey, it's possible. Here's what life looks like. Here's what, you know, work-life balance looks like, I think was, was very helpful to me. Nice, nice. So I think you alluded to my next question about work-life balance. It's kind of like in today's world, right? Obviously, there's a lot of technology and a lot of timers that can go off to kind of help you juggle this. But how do you currently juggle like your home life with your work life? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, I, A, it's a very important priority to me to spend time with my family. Uh, I've got this new three-month-old and absolutely love spending time with him and figuring out what it means to be a dad and spending time with my wife. And that's, that's very important to me. So I definitely prioritize you know, block time for that. Um, and at the same time, one of the, the beauties, the danger certainly, as, as well as the beauty of the digital life and the world that we live in, of course, is that you can work anytime, pretty much from anywhere. And so I, I look to leverage that as much as possible. A uh, good example is I'm traveling right now, actually. So typically, I live in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. I am traveling in the Pacific Northwest, working remotely, spending some time with my family's wife here. And we're able to do that type of thing and travel and get around without having to take tons of time off of work because of the, uh, the beauty of, of working remotely. So I would say you know, lean, into, lean into those realities and always carve out time for people who are important in your life. Very nice, very nice. So, I mean, part of your like, you, you got a pretty strict schedule. I mean, what does your morning routines, your morning habits look like? Yeah, usually I get up in the morning, do some kind of exercise. Usually it's just a, kind of a walk, walk or a couple walks around the block. Um, usually I listen to some kind of podcast, get my, uh, get my mental juices flowing, and then just jump right into work. 
and uh, start catching up on conversations with my team on Slack and knocking out emails and figuring out what are my priorities for the day. And uh, typically work pretty much through to the end of the day. Sometimes I'll grab a lunch break, sometimes not. Um, but just, you know, plug until, until early evening and then uh, as much as possible, try and sign out for, for the rest of the night. Nice, nice, nice. So earlier on in this conversation, you had mentioned, you dropped some information about, you know, your avid reader. So this next question kind of falls into that, that spectrum of space. And it's a question that I love to ask. And it's kind of why we created a Boston Cage book club because of this question. So it's a three-part question. First part is, what books do you recall reading that helped you on your journey to get you to where you are? Second part to this question is, what books are you actively reading right now? And the third part to this question is, have you had an opportunity to author any books as of yet? Yeah. So um, let's see what got me here. One book that was helpful to me kind of thinking through structuring days and efficiency and so forth was Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. Uh, definitely a, a popular pick, I know, but something that I read back in the day and got me into following his podcast as well, which I still enjoy listening to to this day. So I remember that being uh, an important one. Um, another one is the uh, Harvard Business Review. They'll, they'll put out a series of, of short books um, as well as articles uh, that are very tactical to specific marketing or just business-related challenges. And I read a number of those back in the day about leadership, about management, about marketing, business models, and I found those to be very helpful. So, so those, those are the, come, the ones that come to mind for, for past reading. Presently, I don't have as much time to read as I would like between juggling the, the company and, and the newborn, but um, reading some, some, some current events books, um, getting a sense for what's, just, what's going on in our world uh, politically and, uh, and socially. Um, and I also am a big fan of, of fiction. And so I was looking for some kind of uh, good novel that I can uh, chill out with. Uh, I think one of my most recent readings there was the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown, which is a cool uh, sci-fi futuristic series that I, that I enjoy. And in terms of the, um, the writing space, I have not yet authored any books related to, say, marketing or business, that side of things, but I do enjoy writing those types of, of pieces and articles. And so typically I'll put those types of things on our blog and um, sometimes we'll have you know, an opportunity to interview someone and then put together an analysis of that conversation. But uh, kind of one of the realities of the marketing world and how quickly it moves, especially with pay-per-click and working with Google and Facebook is that often by the time you get a book out, <laughs> what you put in that book is, uh, is not gonna be fully up-to-date and accurate. So I'm a big believer in blog posts and articles that are more more current and up-to-date for keeping up to speed with our industry. I think that's an interesting philosophy. I mean, to your point, technology, it's, you know, you drop something today and it was already obsolete, but I think it gives you an opportunity to then do multiple versions of that book, right? To kind of keep growing that same community on the following of that one premium book that you've written, but then you mm -hmm. release another version, another, another version and your audience grows because you're constantly feeding them all the time. So I definitely yeah. would recommend if you haven't, I would love to see you write a book. I would like to see so, some book coming from you. Cause again, there's people that play in, YouTube, there's people that play in, you know, Instagram ads and play in Facebook ads, but you're in the spectrum that you're playing with multiple different things at a high level. What does that look mm -hmm. like? And, and telling that story from that point of view would definitely be fruitful to other marketers as well. Yeah, I, I appreciate that recommendation.
Cool. So, I mean, talking about, you know, you, you got a, a kid that's less than a year old, right? And one of your books, you was talking about fiction, you was talking about, you know, futuristic stuff. So, like, this next question is about the future. So, ideally, your son is, let's say when he turns 21, let's say 20 years from now, mm-hmm. where do you see, like, your business in relation to your son? What do you, what do you have in the, the foreseeing future? That's a great question. I... The short answer is I don't know. <laughs> the long answer is I love the concept of being able to include my son in the business that I work in. Um, I started working different odd jobs and things from a, from a young age and found that to be very helpful and kind of expediting even my entry into the workforce and figuring out what does it mean to be responsible and have a job and work with people and have a common goal. And those are opportunities I very much want to give to my son. I don't know if those will be with this business or something out that something else that'll, that'll be uh, seen as a future unfolds but in some way definitely i want to create those those opportunities for him to um to not to not just look at life as okay i, I go through high school go through college get out of college now i see the world and now i figure out what, what work means now I, I want him to be understanding work as early as possible um and uh and, and prepping for what his life will look like nice very nice so let's, let's dive into like you know tools right i mean obviously you're in the tech space and there's probably a million different tools to verify data, to track analytical insight. And again, Facebook has their own, YouTube has their own, Google has their own as well too. So if you want to kind of just drop maybe your top three platforms that if someone wants to decide to kind of dibble and dabble in this space, what would you recommend that they start with? Yeah, for tracking, let's say tracking visits to and interactions on a website, uh, we usually use Google Analytics, which obviously is is free, and there's a billion different options out there to um, to leverage to analyze traffic to a website. But that's something that we found to be pretty effective over time, uh, relatively simple to use compared to some other options, um, and again, free. So not something that I mean, something that even a, a very small business just getting started can can leverage just as much as a massive business who's got tons of money to spend on on analytics. So we use that for most of our clients. Uh, We also are a big believer in call tracking. So for our clients who look to generate phone calls through their websites, we will use software to help them identify where those calls are coming from and track those back to advertising campaigns we're running for them. So we work with a company called Call Tracking Metrics in that space and leverage that for our clients. Um, Another thing that can be very helpful if you're looking at, let's say, conversion rate optimization on a website is some kind of software like Lucky Orange or Hotjar, where you're able to create heat maps of your website and even more interestingly, record actual um, screen captures of how people are navigating through your website. And that's really cool if you're trying to figure out why aren't people converting on my site and looking to see, oh, well, it's because this form doesn't load or, oh, they're clicking all over the place because I'm not answering this question they have. And so that can help really tighten up a, uh, I'll say a website um, flow and increase that conversion rate. Yeah, I think that's, if, if, if anyone is listening that have not heard of heat maps, I would say stop, rewind, listen to that part again, because it's, it's, it's a game changer. Cause you, again, if you go back to like the nineties, early two thousands, heat maps weren't really where they are right now. And to his point, I mean, you can kind of see exactly what's wrong with your website and then know exactly what to do to fix it versus sitting there guessing or even doing AB testing. When the reality is you can see what the user is doing live. So I definitely appreciate that. Appreciate that recommendation. Um, so let's just talk about like your, your customers a little bit. Cause I mean, obviously 
you talked about the, the diversity of what you do. And again, there may be a Fortune 500 customer that you could work with, and then there may be a small amount of pop that you may be able to work with. So ideally, where do you sit? Like, who is your ideal avatar? Yeah, we like to say that we are industry agnostic. <laughs> and what that has translated into, into meaning is that, like you said, we work with all kinds of different businesses. And really our ideal is a couple couple things about our ideal. Um, some of it has to do with simply the mindset of the business, not so much their size, but we want to work with clients who A, are good at their own business, because if they're bad at their business, then we're going to have a hard time being successful for them. So we're looking for savvy, you know, savvy clients who are treating their own customers well and who are understanding and running their own business well and who then understand how important advertising is as an aspect of their business and needing to um, always be bringing in sales in order to be growing the business, not stagnating and then, and then dying. So that mindset is one thing that we're looking for. And then also to looking at the actual product or service that they're selling and making sure that that is something that we see that we believe we can be successful for, that there is a market for that we are able to effectively reach customers in a cost-effective way too. I think that goes back to the honesty that I mentioned earlier, where we don't, we don't want to have a churn and burn agency where we say yes to everybody that comes on board and then, hey, a few of them work out and the rest of them, we make some money and they leave. What we're looking for, and honestly, what's most profitable too long-term for us is long client retention where we have great relationships with clients and we're able to work with them month after month after month. And I think honesty, from the very first time we speak with a potential client and looking and saying, Hey, I don't think we can be successful for you unless you, you know, change your price point or unless you go after this target audience, not that target audience, because your competitors are so much, you know, bigger and spending so much more money. Those types of conversations, I think, are important in, in making sure that we're working with clients who are open to that input and who don't just view us as a cog, but who view us as a partner as an extension of their marketing arm and are willing to, to trust us. And of course, trust, but verify, um, but trust us with, with their, their campaigns and with the budget that they're investing um, through our, you know, through our stewardship. I'm just going to recap on like the past 20 minutes and I'm just going to pull out these keywords and formalize this, right? So you're looking for individual people that can not only respect what you do, but at least want to learn what you're doing and, and, and show them the results of what you're doing and how you've done it. In addition to that, right, you're looking for individuals that they may not have to be a, a million dollar company, but they'll have some kind of ad spend so they can kind of test and get some results. So like my next part of this question is kind of like, well, where have you seen the most results? Are you more so seeing results in real estate? Are you more so seeing results with digital companies? Are you seeing more results with um, products? All of the above, honestly, because we work in so many different spaces, I would say that the spaces where we we see the most what I would call trackable and provable success are going to be spaces where the majority of the interaction takes place online. So real estate, that that can be, as an example, a, a tougher space because, well, a couple, a couple realities. A, a lot of people are looking for, say, a word of mouth recommendation. It can be hard to get someone to just sign up for a real estate agent because they happened on their website. It certainly, you know, it happens, it occurs, and you can be successful that way. But it's it's tougher than if you're just trying to sell, you know, a shirt and someone <laughs> says, yep, that shirt looks good. Boom, let's buy it. So spaces like that where there's maybe some some um, 
just market challenges in how people might find a provider. Um, those are just going to be harder markets to succeed in across the board for, for anyone. And then also markets where um, a lot of the interaction takes place offline. And so it's harder to, to, to track back the success of campaigns. Let's say, you know, campaigns for retail stores, great example, if you're trying to drive people into a store. Awesome. Um, and you can have successful campaigns, but it's hard to really say to the client, hey, we know that these orders that came from a person who walked through your doors came because this person saw an ad after searching this keyword. You know, there's a lot of gaps there that can be challenging to, to fix or to, to fill. So usually our best trackable and kind of provable performance would be for say e-commerce websites where we're selling or you know we're tracking orders or call center clients where we're driving phone calls to their call center from our campaigns or b2b businesses where we've got people initiating chats on a website filling out forms those, those types of things nice 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 so i mean that, that brings me to something that you said earlier about uh tracking the phone numbers and, and, and those that don't understand like a lot of times you may see an ad that ad could be on any platform. There may be a phone number. That phone number, in some cases, are generically created based upon a keyword. And when you click on it, then the data will say, hey, this phone number and this ad has these particular results. Then you need to put more money into that particular ad, into that phone number. So with that, like, how does that play into what, what you just said, right? I mean, like, again, like you're using software, but again, how many phone numbers do you usually have to create to kind of figure out the span of the results and how many numbers are associated to keywords? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's one of the beauties of some of the, the top call tracking softwares that exist, including the one that we use, because you actually don't have to buy that many phone numbers. We're able to leverage tracking code, let's say on the client's website to line up and say, okay, someone from this location clicked through the website at this time, and then a call was initiated at this timestamp and be able to figure out who's calling with a very high accuracy rate without having to have, you know, 2000 phone numbers. So for a lot of our clients, especially smaller clients, we might have, you know, four or five total call tracking numbers for them. And that enables us to still accurately track all of the traffic that we're sending to them from people clicking through to their website, or maybe seeing, let's say, a phone number in a Google ad as a call extension, that, that type of thing. Very nice. So let's go into like final words of wisdom. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur. Let's say I'm running two businesses. One of them is an online and one of them is a storefront. What words of insight would you give to me to kind of help me be more conducive to say, okay, I have an ad spend budget and I want to start going into online ads? Yeah, I would say you have to make sure that you are going to track the results that you're going to drive from any advertising you spend. That's something so many businesses who come to us, they just they don't know what's happening with the money they're spending because they don't have a, an infrastructure or process in place to track back orders or calls or whatever it may be to the dollars they're spending. And if you don't have that type of tracking in place, then you're really throwing money at a wall and hopefully it's the right wall and it works and you make money off of that. But it's very hard to scale that and repeat that because you don't know which aspects of the campaigns you're running or the channels you're running are actually working. And so you just have to keep throwing more and more money at it when you know you're probably wasting a big, big percentage of that. So I think, you know, it's the single biggest thing I would say to, to someone in the situation you described is figure out how you're going to track this, the success or lack thereof of the advertising that you're going to run. And then also have a mental framework for how you're going to judge success. 
what is it that you're looking for? Do you need to hit a specific return on ad spend based upon your margins? Um, do you need to you know, have a particular cost per order based upon your average order value, whatever the case may be? Um, and are you looking, do you need profitability from, you know, from month one? Or are you willing to invest money and get more aggressive initially to build market share so that then you can make more profit down the road? Those are all things that are going to directly impact uh, your marketing strategy, what types of audiences you go after, what channels you use, how aggressive you can be on those channels. And I think those are the, the decisions that need to be made uh, by you and often in concert too with a partner like, like Stub Group or another agency who can help guide that conversation and thought process and also you know, give some ideas about, hey, what's realistic in the market to expect. Um, and I think working together, a uh, business owner and agency like that can come up with, with a, good, um, a good testing plan for then putting those ad dollars to work. Very interesting. I think one of the key words that, that you alluded to was, was partnerships. So it kind of leads me to my like, next question. Obviously, if you're such in a niche down space, right? I mean, you're 100% online advertising. There's a lot of different piggyback to that, right? I mean, you have SEO over here, you have mm -hmm. digital marketing over here. So, I mean, ideally, if you're looking to partner with other companies, what kind of companies are you looking to partner with? And do you partner with other companies? Yeah, so what we'll typically do there is it will have we'll have companies that we'll recommend to our clients to work with after we've kind of vetted them and seen yes, they do well at, for example, SEO or conversion rate optimization or email marketing or whatever the case may be. And you've got there's there's two approaches really in the marketplace. You have agencies who try to be full service, jack of all trades, do everything for a client. And then you've got um, agencies like us who say we're gonna be the best in one area. And I think there's a place for each and some clients want one, some clients want the other, but we have found a lot of success with really focusing on one thing and not saying yes to too many things because the reality is what we see with a lot of companies coming to us after working with one of those bigger agencies that say yes to everything is that they, that they weren't working with anybody who was really good at any of those areas. You know, they had a mediocre SEO manager, a mediocre PPC manager, and they weren't um, just making effective use of their ad spend for that reason. Very nice. Very nice. So this is kind of like a, a an ad lib question that I was just thinking about as I'm hearing you speak, and it's a kind of a new space, right? And it's, it's a new technology, new space, but it's been around for about ten years, right? So have you done any advertising or marketing strategies or campaigns for any of the NFT stuff that's coming out nowadays? That's a great question. We've had people reaching out to us about marketing NFTs, um, and we've also had some some experience. So with Google policies in particular, Google and Facebook, but Google in particular, um, as their policies evolve to reflect new offerings like NFT and crypto and whatnot, we'll often see advertisers kind of get up, get caught up in that and they'll have their advertising accounts suspended because either they're not following policies or Google doesn't yet know what their policies are. And so it kind of becomes a, a big muddled water. And we have a lot of experience as an agency helping clients with compliance on Google in particular. And so there's been some clients recently where we've helped them figure out what are the policies and maybe get accounts unsuspended in that kind of crypto, uh, crypto and NFT space. And then it's also something that we're, we're figuring out how to market in that space as well. But it's, it's still very, very new to us for sure. Nice. So, I mean, so somebody is hearing you speak and obviously, you know, you're dropping the golden nuggets left and right. You're making it rain, right? So how do they get in contact with you? Yeah, best way is through our website. That is stubgroup.com. So S-T-U-B is in boy and then the word group. And uh, you can see lots of info on there about a company, case studies, all that good stuff. 
And then you can reach out through there to uh, chat with us. And what we'll often do is uh, we call our free advertising evaluation. So if any business is either currently running advertising and they want a third party set of eyes to tell them the good, bad, and ugly of what we see in their account, we're happy to do that and, and you know explain what we would do differently if we were hired to help. And then also if you got a new business, you're not doing advertising, but you want to want to get into it, then we'll have a conversation about your goals and the market. We'll do some research to get you some benchmarks and ideas for what it could look like to work with us and what kind of market expectations would be realistic out of the gate. Nice. Very nice. So we're going into the bonus round. I got a couple bonus questions for you. All right. So my first one is, you know, obviously in this space, everything is monetized, everything is monetization. But in reality, would you still be doing what you're doing right now if money wasn't a factor? That is a great question. I would say probably some aspect of what I'm doing, yes, in that I love, again, kind of that marketing communication side of things and also being able to see so many different business models and so many different ways that people have figured out to make money. That's one of the things I love about the breadth of the clients that come to us. We'll have a client come to us and I'll say, I didn't know that was a market. I didn't know you could make money doing it, but cool. You obviously can, you're doing it. So let's, let's figure out how to connect you with, with clients. And I think working in an agency, honestly, is, can sometimes be a, a fantastic MBA because you get um, front row seat into all kinds of different business models and approaches in a way that you're not going to see if you're just working for one company and that's your career. And I really enjoy that, that learning side of things and that, um, that, that new, it's always something new to figure out there. Nice. Very nice. So my next bonus question would be, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Whew, wow. Um, that is a great question. I would say that the first person that comes to mind is actually a grandmother of mine that I never knew. She died before I was born, my, uh, my dad's mom. Um, but he you know, sp- always spoke highly of her and how much he regretted her not being able to get to meet some of his, some of his kids who were born after she, was, uh, after she passed away. So I would love to, to, to meet her and, and see what she was like and, and ask her questions about my family and maybe even get to understand my dad and the rest of my family even better. Yeah, I think that that's a superb answer. I mean, that's to kind of give you a little ad lib to who I am. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I created the Boston Cage podcast, because I look at this content, not only as content to help other individuals, but, you know, I could see this content being relative because it's evergreen, maybe 100 years from now. And mm-hmm. to your point, like your grandmother, if she had this content, then you would be able to at least see who she was, at least see her mannerisms, see her accent, see what she's talking about, like what was her skill sets, and then take that and grow from that. So, I mean, in today's world, I think we have opportunity to leave behind what our ancestors couldn't leave behind, which is a, is a hell of a thing for us to be able to do in today's world. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. Yep. So going into closing, man, I like to, you know, give the microphone and make you the guest, uh, make myself the guest and make you the host of the Boston Cage podcast. So the microphone is yours. So it's your turn to interview me. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? Literally, well, you've probably been asked this before, but I'm always curious to know what gets people into starting the podcast. And what would you say? Was there a particular moment or thing that you said, yes, I'm going to start a podcast now? Or was it more of a say, gradual, slow build that finally got you, got you to this point? 
Nah, I mean, literally, when I had my stroke in 2018, and I woke up in a hospital, and I was like, holy shit, I survived. And then it was like, okay, how do I then move forward? So I, I tell this story pretty fairly often, but it was kind of like when I look back at it, it was an opportunity for me to step in front of the limelight, but mm-hmm. also give way more back. Because my other brand that I still have access to, it wasn't a brand that was deemed forgiving. It was a more so a service brand versus Boston Cage is a brand that allows me to kind of give and give and give and give. So once I had the opportunity to rebrand and I was like, what's the best medium I could rebrand? I could become maybe a YouTuber. But again, I was so used to being behind the curtain. I didn't want to step in front of the camera. So it was kind of like one of my caveats of, okay, well, at least I could use my voice. But obviously, you know, once you start doing it, you get really accustomed, you grow into that space. So now it's like with video and everything, I was like, shit, I should have started in video with 2020's hindsight. But that's why I started the podcast. It was kind of a way for me to market who I was, leave behind a legacy, and then also rebrand myself and into the education space. I love it. Yeah, and I love that concept too, like you said, of, of leaving a legacy and, and creating evergreen content that can be valuable to people even down the road, even, even when... Google or Facebook are uh, names in the history book, <laughs> but marketing and communication with people and honesty and integrity, those are things that are never going to go away. Yep. Yep. Well, I definitely appreciate it. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we're moving fast, furious, and I think it's just because of who we are with technology and we just understand what we're talking about. I mean, I love all the information that you drop in. And then again, a recommendation if anyone is looking for ads, I would definitely say, you know, check check John out. I mean, give contact him, check out his website, check out his data, check out his information and take up on his offer about his, what would you say, was a free? Yeah, free advertising evaluation. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. So again, man, I appreciate you being on here. And it's another great episode of Boston Cage. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boston Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.